0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What kind of a flyer
1: are you? Clearly, a lot of people are nervous flyers because something happens to an awful lot of all of us, I think, when you get on an airplane that results in videos going viral and just overall bad behavior. Stuff that you might never do at home or otherwise in a public place, and there you are find yourself behaving badly on an airplane. What happens to us? Well, Dr. Cheryl Skaggs is with us now, professor of sociology at the University of Texas. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. What is happening to our behavior? Are we becoming more nervous when we fly? I I think on the most part, yes, uh, people definitely are.
2: They see these reports in the media and they think, oh, no, what is this going to happen to me?
1: Is this, are we going to be viral? You think we're paranoid about that?
2: Um, I think we're, we're increasingly paranoid about it. Uh, the more we see these kinds of um, outbreaks on airplanes, it uh, definitely raises uh, exa- anxiety and, you know, people come expecting that something might happen on an
1: airplane. Dr. Skeggs, have, have we always had this kind of behavior on airplanes before? Has it always done that to us? I think there's definitely been an element of this
2: in the past, but this is elevated to a whole new level, especially since the pandemic. But, you know, reports show that even prior to the pandemic, these incidences of emotional outbursts or physical altercations on planes had increased in the past decade, even prior to the pandemic.
1: And so what happens to us? What is the, the behavior that triggers this?
2: I think there are a couple of things in the research that I worked on we looked at at alcohol as being a very critical element, so that was in a lot of the reports that flight attendants or flight crew provide that you know they're saying either passengers are are coming intoxicated or close to being intoxicated when they board aircraft or they um, consume too much alcohol when they get on the aircraft. And so it's, you know, part of it's a double-edged sword because airlines provide the alcohol to kind of help offset the anxiety, but then that also tends to elevate situations. And so people, you know, are taking advantage of that. I think in part to minimize the anxiety, but I think in another part uh, about an increasing, uh, entitlement. So this culture of entitlement plays out in aircraft all the time. So I deserve this. I paid this much for this flight. You know, I need to be
1: treated well. Yes. Are airlines also not making it easier for us? They seem to be crowding us in tighter and tighter. Absolutely. You're hitting a sore
2: spot with a lot of people. So we've looked at, in some of our other research, we looked at things like seat pitch and leg room. And, you know, clearly this is an issue, where people feel like they're being more and more confined. So seats are closer together. So they're crowding more people. If you're not sitting in first class or now business class, they're definitely feeling the pinch, so to speak, when they board an aircraft.
1: Are are we reaching a tipping point, do you think, with this? Like our airlines, are they responsive to this? Or do they just feel like, no, they're just going to keep cramming as many people as they can onto an airplane?
2: I don't get the sense that they're very responsive at all about this. They're in it to make a buck and profit is a bottom line. So if they can crowd the aircraft, and I think that's uh, better for them. You know, one of the other trends that exist is, you know, more crowded aircraft. So, you know, I can remember flying, you know, a decade or two ago when you might have a half empty aircraft, or it was it's three, three quarters full, but you know, now in most of the flights that I'm even on, I rarely do you have an empty seat on the aircraft. So I think that also plays a role because, you know, it, the boarding takes longer, you know, the that, you know, that anxiety that people may have even about flying, um, you know, you have that time to for it to intensify.
1: That's very true. And I know your research looked into the types of airplane misconduct. Were you, could you break it down into categories?
2: Uh, yes. So we had uh, physical altercations or assaults, uh, verbal assaults or physical or or verbal altercations, and then what we classified as sort of miscellaneous. So those might be at the lowest tier. Those might be things like fighting over overhead bin space or smoking in the lavatory or bringing on, which is a, it seems to be an increasing occurrence where people are bringing on their own alcohol to consume I think this started with the pandemic when uh, airlines weren't providing alcohol or serving alcohol on aircraft, so people were bringing their own. They could either get that from a duty-free shop or maybe they're bringing it and putting it in their own container uh, from a, a restaurant or bar in the airport. And then um, the verbal[s] are, you know, anything that would be verbally assaulting. It could also be sort of a standoff of of wills with the flight attendants so people you know are, are saying things that may not seem like a verbal assault but mm-hmm. it's the way they're saying it in a manner that's trying to intimidate flight attendants and then the physical assaults can range from anything from a you know a push or shove which we've seen you know quite a few of those to you know blows to the head which we've seen oh. play out in social media accounts that's crazy what is the most common of these then the most common are the, the verbal assaults by far. So people just uh, getting in disputes, uh, you know, over seat. You know, I, I've seen a lot of this with the uh, holiday travel where people are like, do I recline? Do I not recline my seat back? Do I have the right to do that? Um, so, you know. The speeds over things like that, over taking over uh, armrest space or, you know, things like that, um, that tend to escalate when people are already agitated.
1: Right. I just feel like it's safest to not, not lower your seat at all. <laughs> like just, unless you're sitting in business <laughs> class, which I never am, don't lower your seat. Right, right.
2: So you're just asking for it. Which, right. You know, it's the same <laughs> because on, yeah, for a reason, but yeah. Okay. And especially for a long flight,
1: yeah, that makes it harder for people though, doesn't it? Like they just if you're on a long flight, some they need to recline their seat to maybe sleep for a little while, right, right, okay, so what did your research tell us then like is there anything do people recognize their behavior when they're doing it? I think some people do.
2: I've seen some reports where people. it seems like people are sort of trying to game the system, or like I mentioned before, where they think because You know, there's this entitlement of because I paid so much for the flight, I'm entitled to, you know, great service and I'm entitled to have overhead bin space and I'm entitled to have, you know, extra leg room and, you know, things like that. So I I think that's a particular issue.
1: You must have just so many examples to pick from.
2: Yeah. But yes, we have a lot of examples,
1: unfortunately. <laughs> that is very true. So would you say there was a point in time when this behavior started to get worse? Like, I know we talk about the pandemic, but does it go farther back than that?
2: It does go further back than that. So we saw even in the early 2000s um, the increase in the number of these incidences. So whether, uh, and and I think, too, uh, like I said before, when you have social, these physical altercations play out on social media, I think people start to believe that's the norm. And those are definitely, you know, very small number of incidences involved, things like, you know, that are that extreme. Um, Like I said, most of them are are these verbal assaults and and flight attendants are the the biggest target. So I think, you know, also the fact that flight attendants are female, so it's still over 70 percent in the U.S. are are female. And so people are taking advantage of those, both male and female, but mostly males pushing the limits and, you know, arguing with the flight attendants or, you know, making demands on the flight attendants that are extreme or excessive.
1: Right. Well, it certainly doesn't seem like the circumstances within which we fly are going to change anytime soon. So I'm sure there's plenty more for you to research, Dr. Skanks. Thank you so much for your time today. (laughs) You're very welcome. Thank you. That's Dr. Cheryl Skaggs, Professor of Sociology at the University of Texas. Her research looks into airline rage and she has no shortage of examples to cite and they really do believe that post 9-11, right, all the changes in air travel, cost cutting, security measures, there's so many rules for people to follow now, it's less comfortable people are more tense, your flight could be delayed your luggage could be lost it just feels like so many things can go wrong and yes, you have paid so much money and you're nervous about getting to where you want to go has resulted in people just having more air rage out there, have you ever seen something like that on an airplane? Have you ever been one of those people?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: All right, time for us on this Friday morning to check in with Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Von.
3: Good morning, Simi, and hey, have you ever had the experience of an email with your name on it ending up in the wrong hands?
1: I am terrified just thinking of that possibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's reply been a while. No, so, so don't get I me started on the... reply all. That's like a yeah. nightmare. I, this is, it's been a while, though, since we have had a genuine kind of faux pas like this.
3: Yeah, you know, and I give you, yeah, you have to have a little bit of sympathy for the energy minister, Josie Osborne, So because, because of what happened. So on Wednesday morning, she writes an email to herself laying out some ideas for energy policy in BC Hydro climate action here in BC that are under discussion in the government. She writes that at 7.13 a.m. And we know that because she then prints it out and then misplaces, drops, loses the email. She then has the experience a little over 24 hours later in the legislature about 10.30 Thursday, of having the memo read back out in the legislature because after she dropped it, it fell into the hands of the opposition and the opposition made political hay of it. So it doesn't get much worse than that. Simi, I'll remind the listener that it can take months to get something out of this government by access to information request. We don't very often see what a minister's thinking about anything Within 24 hours without this kind of leak. And this was the gold standard in leaks.
1: Okay, let's talk about what was in this email.
3: So, first of all, and I think, you know, for the public, this is the interesting one the government is considering offering either rebates on your BC hydro bill or a freeze in hydro rates to offset the pain of the carbon tax. Now, you know, uh, we know right across the country there's a backlash against the carbon tax. But remember what the New Democrats have been saying publicly here. By God, we're going to stand by this carbon tax even if we're the last government in Canada. What this tells you is that behind the scenes, they are concerned about the backlash, which is real. And they're looking at ways to provide relief that don't actually involve changing the tax. So you don't freeze the tax, you don't necessarily put off the next increase, but you order BC Hydro to funnel some of the cash back to ratepayers in the form of a rebate or maybe an outright freeze of hydro rates. So that's what's under discussion. That's, you know, I think. That's good news if you, you know, pay your hydro bills or worried about the cost of home heating or anything. Uh, clearly, the government is aware that people are getting fed up with the burden of the carbon tax, even though publicly it's saying, yeah, well, you know, it's only the opposition parties that are going to do anything about the carbon tax.
1: Right. It is so interesting because so we've talked so often recently about a, a government that is very stuck on doing things their way. And this shows you that is not the case necessarily behind the scenes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Behind the scenes. This is this is the new Democrats talking to themselves when they think no one's listening. So the other thing in this that's interesting, too, is there's a clearly a concern in the government about. BC Hydro's ability to supply clean, green electricity for the transition to away from fossil fuels and also to electrify existing industries and to provide electricity to companies that want to invest in British Columbia. So the email discusses the case of Fortescue, which is a company that is talking about building one of those big hydrogen manufacturing plants in Prince George. The company would invest $3 billion here. They need 1,000 megawatts of electricity, which is approaching the output of Site C. And what the memo says is, you know, we can't supply (laughs) all this electricity. Uh, We're going to have to go to a company like Fortescue... And we're going to have to say either you put up a billion dollars to pay the cost of the generating facilities and the transmission lines or scale down your project. Now, again, that's not what the government says publicly. Premier David Eby is delighted that a foreign company wants to spend $3 billion at building a hydrogen plant here in British Columbia. He points it as evidence that investors have confidence in British Columbia but behind the scenes, this memo was like a shakedown, right? Either you put up a billion dollars for the power, or uh, we're going to have to ask you to scale down the project. That's not necessarily the kind of incentive that persuades big companies to invest in British Columbia. So the email is very revealing on that as well.
1: Interesting goings on in the last, uh, I would say, couple of days now here, Vaughn. About uh, government seems to be a little more worried about some things than we realized.
3: Yes, Simeon, I just wanted to flag something about that Osborne Energy Minister email uh, that we talked about in the first bit. You can tell how sensitive the New Democrats are about this leak because they are pushing back against how that email is characterized. So what I say in my column in the Vancouver Sun today, what we understand is Osborne acknowledged her name is on the email and she sent it to herself. She says, however, that the ideas in it were not her ideas. They were the ideas of an advisor who she declined to name. But she also said these are ideas that are under discussion in the government. So that's the news is this is options that are under discussion in the government. But they're very upset at the suggestion that it's Josie Osborne's email, even though Simi Her name is on the email. She sent it to herself. She assembled the email. She (laughs) printed it out. She lost it. And in a news conference with the press gallery, she did not disavow the contents and say, that's not what I would do. She refused to answer any questions about what happened. So all of this together, Sammy tells you, the New Democrats are very sensitive about it having leaked that they are thinking of offering major rebates through BC Hydro to ease the pain of the carbon tax. And they're also uh, concerned about the ability to deliver the electricity for the giant projects that they're promoting around the province.
1: Certainly sounds like it. So another sign perhaps of that sensitivity is their response on this housing bill.
3: Yeah, you know, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention, uh, but the government, uh, among the many housing bills we got this fall, is one that laid out the situation where municipalities can and cannot designate areas like parks, public spaces for homeless encampments. And the government introduced the bill back in October, and they said, this will make it easier to do that it will mean an end to the court battles over whether you can and can't restrict homeless encampment. And the government was going ahead and passing the bill. And they said it was going to be, this was good news. Well, the Union of BC Municipalities pushed back and they said, not only will this make it easier to uh, say you can't have a homeless encampment in that park, it will make it almost impossible, according to the UBCM, to, to go ahead and put any restrictions on homeless encampments anywhere in the community. The interesting thing is the response from the government. I mean, you know, they brushed off a lot of the criticisms of their housing legislation. But yesterday, Premier David Eby said, you know what, UBCM may have a point here. We are going to have to sort out this disagreement over what this legislation does. Now, he stopped short of what the local government association asked for. He didn't agree to pull the bill, but he did agree that it won't be proclaimed into law until this disagreement over what it means is sorted out. So this is the first case we've seen this fall where the government has acknowledged, Simi, there are any problems with all of its big housing bills. So I'll give him credit for pausing. I'll give him credit for listening to local government. And I think this is one dispute that they ought to make very clear what the implications are of the legislation or the whole thing is just going to go back into court. The object of the bill was to make sure we get these things out of court.
1: It's interesting, like why this one and not the other areas where, where other people have pushed back. Like I'm thinking even the speculation tax. We heard this week with the expansion that all the, a lot of the mayors said, well, we we didn't know anything about this. Yeah.
3: No, and, uh, you know, the short-term rentals, there are all kinds of concerns yeah. there. The, um, the, the squashing. The ability of local government to have public hearings on housing projects, the impact of the, you know, 20-story buildings around transit stations on on some neighborhoods where, especially neighborhoods that are full of low-rise rental buildings, so they'll get demolished and people get evicted. I mean, there's been lots of good criticism. And, Simi, their answer in most cases has been, uh, wait for the regulation, Uh, we may sort some of this out in the new year, or, ah, you're just a tool of the developers, that's all you're trying to do. Uh, I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, as I said, we've seen two things in the last 24 hours, Simi, that the government is aware that some of the things it's doing aren't very popular. One is... They're not going to be able to hold the line on the carbon tax without offering more relief. And in this one, they've admitted that local government has a point in pointing out the flaws in another of the, what, I think there are five pieces of legislation before the House that involve housing.
1: Okay. So interesting point to get at. You wonder if anybody will learn anything though, Vaughn. That's the thing. You've been covering this for a long time. Will it change anything going forward or will they just continue to clean up perhaps where they make a mistake?
3: Well, you know, I, I think the the thing that we'll be watching next year is this housing legislation is very ambitious. It represents an enormous transfer of power over housing from local government to the provincial government, and even if you think that the objective there is needed to add housing, the... the the provincial government has a lot less experience than local government in deciding what is and is not a plausible housing project. So, unless you think the provincial bureaucracy that create, cooked up all this stuff is infallible, which they've proven they're not, I think we're headed for a very bumpy year on the housing front. There's a growing number of municipalities, including some led by New Democrats, that are saying, you know what? you're trying to do too much hair and some of this stuff isn't going to work. The government would be very wise to proceed carefully on some of its other legislation too, because I think a lot of the pushback is from people who think it would be good to have greater density, right. would be good to have more housing around transit lines, but come on, the details Yes. Is the provincial government up to calling to accomplishing all this without a lot more cooperation at the local level? Exactly.
1: All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye bye, Simmy. Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This
0: is Mornings with Simi.
1: It's time for us to take a look at what is happening down in the United States over the past week. And for that, we turn to Reggie Jacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Uh, let's first get this update on the ceasefire situation. That I know the United States has been working hard to try to make this happen.
4: Yeah, uh, so, uh, currently, as of right now, we understand that 13 Israeli hostages, uh, are being handed over by Hamas to members of the, uh, the ICRC in the region, the Red Cross in the region. This obviously is, uh, the culmination of weeks of efforts, uh, of talks mediated by the Qatari government, uh, involving the United States and Hamas officials, the Egyptian officials and Israelis. Uh, these 13 are the first 13 that are being handed over. There's apparently uh, 12 uh, Thai nationals being handed over as well. And this is going to continue over a number of days with that ceasefire in place. And then we've heard from Israel that if further exchanges of hostages are not kind of put in place or or continued, that the truce will be broken and then the fighting will resume.
1: It's very tense, isn't it, Reggie? Because it's been such a, a road just to get to this place.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this is weeks and weeks and weeks of negotiations um, between multiple different diplomatic levels and diplomatic channels to try and get where we are, which is 13 people being given back by Hamas. Uh, it's worth pointing out Israel uh, is giving up kind of a three to one trade here. So for every uh, hostage that's released, three Palestinians are being released uh, from jails uh, in in Israel. Um, you know, this, again, is just the beginning. There are concerns here that, you know, the schedule may not be adhered to because, you know, we've heard it from U.S. officials schedules, our schedules, our schedules until they're broken and missed. And then it becomes an unclear path forward to what happens next.
1: OK, so we're waiting to see what happens with that. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, let's talk about some of the presidential politics going on as well, including the race. There's been a lot of talk about whether or not former President Donald Trump could be disqualified from the presidential race for next year. What's going on with that?
4: Yeah, and look, it's it's been an uphill climb. There have been two court cases that have already been thrown out in the U.S. Uh, with with people trying to keep Trump off of the ballot, citing what took place on January sixth. So all eyes are now on Colorado, where a judge has initially said, look, Trump has to stay on the ballot, and that's uh, on the ballot, and that's because um, you know the the Constitution says if you uh, you know cite an insurrection or you're involved in that, and you're a sitting officer who's taken an oath of the office, uh, you can't qualify to be uh, in office again, but it doesn't specifically say the presidency. So the judge had to follow what the constitution says. That's now going to be appealed. The appeal uh, was, was granted earlier this week. Both sides are actually appealing it here. So there is still a possibility here that the Supreme Court in Colorado could decide that Trump can't go on the ballot. That likely may get punted up to the, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And there are some literalists on the Supreme Court at the highest level who kind of take the constitution As is, Um, you know, and it doesn't say presidency. So they may say, look, it doesn't say presidency. Trump can stay on the ballot. But this is a big fight.
1: Oh, no kidding. That is a big fight. It sounds like it's just going to get bigger on that one, too. And since we're speaking of Donald Trump here, it sounds like the House Speaker has been making some visits.
4: Uh, yeah. And and look, th- this one w- was, uh, you know, a little cr- you know, it was criticized by Democrats and it was kind of expected by uh, the vast majority of people who watch U.S. politics down here, because, you know, anytime somebody is in the, the position of becoming the speaker, wanting to be speaker, leader of the Republican Party, they go down to Mar-a-Lago. They talk with pre- former President Donald Trump. Uh, you know, some people call it kissing the ring uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, but, you know, this is essentially what what Democrats had argued when Mike Johnson initially became the U.S. speaker, saying, that this is an extension of Donald Trump in the U.S. House of Representatives because they fall along the same lines ideologically uh, and politically, um, and and to have the speaker down there, you know, it raises that question of, you know, have have Republicans not learned a lesson here that, you know ultimately linking yourself to Trump can be a losing matter when it comes to an election but at the end of the day he still controls such a significant part of the Republican Party that it almost feels like an expectation now for for a Republican leader to be in front of him.
1: Well let's talk about the other side of the aisle here too. It was President Joe Biden's birthday this week. Was it necessary Reggie for that picture? Like did they have to put all of the candles (laughs) on the cake? I mean it was a big flame.
4: It was a big flame and and look they, they, they put all those candles on a cake at the exact exact moment where there are so many democrats coming out and and making yeah. complaints and criticisms about about Joe Biden's age. Um, and, you know, he he's taking it in stride. He says, look, I can't do anything about the fact that I am the age that I am coming with my age is experience and longevity in politics. But the flip side of that is coming with age is the fact that you are the oldest president. He is the oldest president in American history. Next year, if he wins the election, it will happen right before he turns 82. If he stays in office for all four years, oh, wow. if he wins, he'll be 86 years old. And there are questions as to whether or not that is simply too too old. Especially when we've seen what happens, you know, on the lower side of politics. Diane Feinstein was a was a sitting senator until she was roughly ninety, and then died sitting in office. There are concerns here that age is becoming too much of a factor.
1: Yeah, legit too. I looked at that cake and I thought, oh boy, was that really necessary? It's almost like they're poking the bear with that one. Uh, but let's also talk, since we're talking about age and the wisdom that comes with that, the life and legacy of the late Rosalind Carter, who passed away this week.
4: And look, this this there there's emotion uh, when you read. Stories uh, about the life uh, oh, yes. of Roslyn Carter and and her husband Jimmy Carter. You know, a one term president, but you know, stayed in in the kind of spotlight for decades and decades after he uh, left office. Uh, she died, uh, you know, a number of days ago. Uh, her funeral's expected next week. Joe Biden will be amongst the dignitaries that are going to be there. Uh, but but reading through the kind of final moments of her life, that you know, Jimmy Carter sat there holding hands with her, talking about the decades and decades of marriage and uh, that they had. That if he eventually they put the beds kind of foot to foot so they could look at each other. He woke up in the morning, realized she wasn't there. He started crying. You know, it it goes to show that, you know, love can really outlast everything here. I mean, they were married for something like 77 years. Um, but she has a legacy, too. I mean, she, she, she played an active role uh, in the White House and kind of paved an uh, an extended path forward for additional First Ladies to be able to, to follow down. But, you know, it is the loss. Um, it is a loss for the Carter family, but for the American people as well.
1: It really is. She's quite amazing. What a life there. Now, on a completely different, non-political, just weird story note here, what's the deal with Taco Bell? What is the story about this Taco <laughs> Bell party from hell? I mean, <laughs> look. You like this story, Reggie. This story, you wanted to story, talk about
4: it. The story is great because uh, it talks about, you know, it, it talks about a whole bunch of different things, including open sex inside of a, of a Taco Bell. It was a Christmas party uh, at this Taco Bell. It was last year. It was at the end of 2022 where an you know employee was asked to come to the Christmas party. She brought a, a, a guacamole bowl to the potluck. Um, she says that she stepped outside uh, from the party, came back in, two people were having sex, and then the manager... Was having sex, and then people were making out with each other in the party. She just wanted to go and get her guacamole bowl back. Somebody had thrown <laughs> up in her guacamole bowl. Other people were throwing up in the garbage. She felt she she was disgusted by this, so she sued. Uh, people lost their jobs. She eventually was moved to a different uh, Taco Bell location after being threatened, and her car windows were broken. This is now going to you know be making its way through some kind of legal system here. But at the end of the day, it just you know when you're sitting in a fast food restaurant know what might have happened at the table that you're sitting at.
1: Okay, first of all, gross. Uh, second, have you not ever been to a Christmas party like this? Because I know I've been to a Christmas party like this. Like a work-related Christmas party before like I, that?
4: I won't say what kind of parties, uh, what has happened at the parties that I've been to, but I've been at parties where right. exciting things have happened. Um, I haven't had a guacamole bowl thrown up in, you. but I have been in, in, in the presence of 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 people <laughs>
1: Mm. partaking
4: in festive a
1: little too much uh,
4: yes
1: (laughs) i will also say like reggie i have been to a party that sounds similar to this one and all i will say was it was not cknw that's for sure
4: (laughs) i will i will say no no at no part was this a chorus uh, party (laughs) i I, I was not in radio or tv at the time
1: (laughs) oh okay wow so many stories uh thank you for that reggie thank you that is reggie chikini our washington correspondent for global news yeah, that's the story I feel like everybody is going to want to talk about, the holiday party from hell. This one happened to take place at a Taco Bell. I have I have seen a couple of crazy holiday parties in my time, ta- work parties we're talking about here. This makes me think that people must have a story out there, right? What is yours?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: This time of year, I think a lot of us look around for how can we do more? How can we help those who really need it? It's tough, right? For families, for people who are struggling, anybody really who is struggling at this time of year, there are ways that you can actually make a difference. And the Vancouver Street Store is one of those ways. Now, Vivian Wong is with us now, the marketing lead of Empower to Employ, and is going to help us learn all about this. Vivian, thank you for being with us.
0: Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. What is the Vancouver Street Store? Yes, so at to Empower, we are a charity that empowers people with barriers through entrepreneurship. And on December 16th at Oppahheimer Park, the Vancouver Street Store is a free outdoor pop-up store um, that aims to provide a dignified shopping experience for the downtown Eastside community and residents. Um, So it's really a day where we get to celebrate, get some free food, um, and just have fun all together during the holiday season.
1: Oh, this is so lovely. So how does this work then? So do people donate and then that
0: will be available? Yes. So the street store is primarily fueled by clothing donations from the community. Um, And from those clothing donations, every year our guests get to choose up to 10 gently used clothing items, enjoy a free hot meal, receive a haircut, um, and a new addition this year is get some chiropractor services.
1: Oh, really? Okay, so let's run through the list. And I know people would be like, oh, I, I could donate something for this. Yeah. <laughs> so what can we donate?
0: Definitely. So we're currently accepting gently used winter clothing donations and toiletries. Um, and we're in dire need of specifically adult winter jackets, sweaters, blankets and boots. Um, and this coming Tuesday, November twenty eighth, is actually our next biggest drop-off, which is happening from 5 to 8 p.m. at our office, which is located on 319 West Pender Street.
1: Okay, so people can drop these items off. Now, what are the parameters of this, Vivian? Like, obviously, gently used, you know, that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff.
0: Yes, so uh, we'll be accepting pretty much everything that you have in your closets that you might not be needing anymore during the holiday season. Uh, the only thing that we do not accept for the street store are summer clothing, uh, just because nobody wants to be wearing t-shirts. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, uh, kids clothing and no um, travel size shampoo bottles or conditioner, just because uh, even for myself, I can't. Get through, or I get through a shampoo bottle really quickly in one shower. So, um, full size bottle is the way to go.
1: Right. Okay. Don't clear out all the hotel size stuff that you've got in your (laughs) drawer there and think that you're going to donate that. Oh, also uh, the types of shoes that people are are needing. Yes.
0: Yes, We will be accepting only closed toe shoes. Um, So, ones that are great are winter boots or sneakers, uh, but just no heels or uh, slip flops. Okay. What kind of a difference does this make, Vivian? What have you seen? Definitely. So this year, we're actually celebrating our 10th anniversary of the Street Store. Um, And to date, we've welcomed over 10,000 guests and collected over 20,000 clothing items. And what we've learned from the past years is every item donated really makes a difference in someone's life. So whether it's that sweater that you donated or that blanket, it really gives them warmth. Um, And it's incredibly important this year because we just learned that the spike in homelessness actually increased by 32% since 2020. So we know that there is a need and we definitely want to be there for the community uh, this coming December.
1: Oh my goodness, that is a huge need.
0: Okay, so where can people find out more? Definitely. So to learn more about the event and our upcoming donation drop-off, uh, please give us a follow at um, Instagram at Employed to Empower or visit our website, www com. All
1: right, we will do that. Vivian, thank you and listen, good luck with the event. Thank you so much, Cindy. That is Vivian Wong, marketing lead of Empower to Employ. Uh, They are organizing this Vancouver Street Store event. So check out their website for more on that. What you can donate and what they're looking for, winter jackets, pants, boots, uh, new underwear and socks, new towels and unopened toiletries, not the hotel sized kind, medium sized to large sized backpacks, warm blankets, sleeping bags, unopened dog treats too. Because yeah, that's all necessary and they organize it all into a street store that will be at Oppenheimer Park coming up in December and people can shop there for what they need. Great event. If you've got things that you can donate, please check out their website, Empower to Employ.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: What is going on with BC's Safe Supply Program? Lately, there's been a lot of discussion about how safe it is, or more specifically, I should say, where some of that safe supply is actually ending up. So this new scrutiny is coming from several different directions, including a group of addiction experts who sent a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry outlining concerns. So we know that the Minister of, of Mental Health uh, Jennifer Whiteside and Dr. Bonnie Henry have launched a review of the province's safe supply program in light of the concerns, but we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this because we're also hearing that the federal minister of mental health and addictions has also launched a probe into the efficacy of this safe supply program because of all these concerns, right? Well, Dr. Meldon Kahn is with us now, an associate professor of family medicine at the University of Toronto, medical director of the substance use service at Women's College Hospital. Dr. Kahn, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. What are your concerns with this?
5: Well, there's a, a number of reports uh, that uh, take-home hydromorphone is being diverted or sold, not just to people who use fentanyl, but to youth, uh, to people on opiate agonist therapy and other people who are naive or who are not regular opiate users. Just to back up a second, the, the Uh, common practice in safe supply programs is to prescribe large doses of take-home hydromorphone tablets, uh, you know, up to 24, 30 a day to take home for patients to use, to inject, or to sell. And it looks like selling is quite common. Uh, And so if a, a young person who is not a regular opiate user starts to use take home hydromorphone. This is actually very dangerous. They, uh, there is good evidence from older studies that patients, young people who have access to prescription opiates, are likely to start injecting them. And are likely to proceed to more powerful opiates such as heroin and fentanyl. And we believe that is happening here. Uh, And also people who inject take-home hydromorphone tablets are at high risk for bacterial infections. So we think that the safe supply programs are contributing to harm and to risk for the public.
1: Okay, so how did, in your opinion and in your view, how did this happen? Were there not proper safeguards put in place? I mean, obviously the idea was there, the idea was good, but what has gone wrong?
5: Well, I think this is a radical new form of, of uh, treatment or of delivery of opiate medication. It's completely uh, contrary to established practice uh, in opiate agonist treatment programs powerful opiates such as methadone or slow-release oral morphine are dispensed under supervision. So they have taken a radical new step in order to uh, you know, pre- prevent people from using fentanyl or as an alternative to fentanyl. But this was done with no oversight and no accountability. There is no comparison of safe supply to the standard treatment, which is opiate agonist therapy, even though opiate agonist therapy has powerful and compelling evidence that it reduces overdose death and it reduces harm. There is no look at the harms of diversion. All they did uh, in looking at diversion was do these qualitative studies, which were essentially marketing studies where people who sold hydromorphone were saying that they were doing it just for good reasons to prevent people from using fentanyl. But they didn't look at the impact of Diversion of hydromorphone on hospitalizations or on transitioning youth from uh, prescription opiates to injection opiates to fentanyl. Do you think it was done with no, with uh, really an abdication of responsibility on the part of public health authorities?
1: But do you think there really there has been so much pressure on health authorities to do something? Right, there is a almost a sense of desperation that they have to do something about these uh, opioid overdoses. Uh, like, isn't that where this was coming from?
5: Oh, absolutely. You're right. There is. This is the by far the most serious public health emergency of our generation, and I'm including COVID in that. This is a very, very serious public health crisis, and it's getting worse. So public health authorities should uh, do something about it. So I would suggest that they have ignored uh, two things. One is to introduce safe supply with appropriate Uh, uh, guards so that uh, safe supply is actually safe and doesn't harm the public. That would include, for example, ensuring that take-home hydromorphone doses are not take-home, that they are supervised until the patient is stable. The other is that safe supply should be combined with opiate agonist therapy, which will markedly reduce the need for large numbers of tablets and will also prevent diversion. And the third is coordination of care between uh, OAT providers and safe supply providers so that people are not dropping out of OAT to go on to safe supply. Finally, there's a need to tremendously strengthen the uh, opiate agonist treatment system. This is the mainstay of harm reduction, of preventing overdose deaths. There's very compelling evidence for that. But uh, the retention rates and access to OAT treatment are, are low, and they need strengthening. Uh, uh, There needs to be innovative medication protocols such as greater use of extended-release buprenorphine. There needs to be sure that everyone who presents to the emergency department or hospital uh, or withdrawal management service has access on-site and immediately to evidence-based opioid agonist treatment. So these are some steps that need to be taken, whereas the B.C. government has simply put all their eggs in this one basket with safe supply without proper oversight and without proper study.
1: Is this salvageable then? I mean, I know you described a few things there, but are, 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 how soon, we have to do this soon, it would seem like, before the tide completely turns.
5: This is totally salvageable. Well, Nobody is saying that they should just get rid of safe supply programs. They're just saying that they should be based on evidence and they should have precautions to minimize diversion and unsupervised injection. So the programs should uh, ensure that hydromorphone is dispensed under supervision at a pharmacy, uh, that uh, it is combined with opiate agonist medications such as methadone, uh, and that there is coordination of care with OAT providers. Uh, And also that there needs to be efforts to strengthen the OAT system. All these things are practical and evidence-based, and they're not particularly expensive.
1: Do you see any evidence, though, that we're headed down the road to do those things?
5: No. Well, I mean, I I was very heartened to hear what you said, that, that there are these reviews taking place, so we'll see how those reviews are, but otherwise... Uh, And I would say that in in BC and Health Canada, they've taken, I think, the wrong path, but other provinces, I think, are are more prudent and are taking more evidence-based steps. For example, Alberta's Virtual Opiate Dependency Program is a wonderful program. It uh, allows access to opiate agonist treatment, same-day opiate agonist treatment. Uh, in rural areas, in communities, in emergency departments, and so on. And it's been highly successful in, in engaging people in OAT.
1: Right. Okay. So, I mean, the numbers in BC, though, we've had a public health emergency here longer than other provinces have. Like, we, we've got, a, I would say, a bigger problem.
5: You do. You're a bigger uh, uh, province. And, and But what I'm saying is that safe supply is fueling the problem. And uh, there is no evidence that it's actually turning things around. So it needs to be more evidence-based. It needs to be safer for the public. Let's not forget the terrible OxyContin crisis that was in the late 90s and 2000s. That was fueled primarily by diverted OxyContin. Patients were prescribed OxyContin. They sold it to other uh, non-patients who injected it and died. And the same thing is happening with Safe Supply. We need to to make Safe Supply safe, just like we made Oxycontin safe by ensuring that there was more prudent prescribing of it.
1: Mm, I know, that took a while though, didn't it? Uh, Dr. Kahan, thank you so much for your time this morning.
5: Okay, thank you. That's
1: Dr. Meldon Kahan, an Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Toronto and Medical Director of the Substance Use Service at Women's College Hospital, saying that, you know, BC in particular and the federal government overall really needs to tighten up the Safer Supply program, make some changes. Uh, And I know there have been lots of concerns here in BC. We've talked about them. And yes, there is a review going on, but will that result in some of the changes, such as the ones that Dr. Kahan talked about there? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com.